0: The Flash Mob Method of Scientific Inquiry August twenty fourth, 2011 The definition of hell is being condescended to by idiots. It will probably be MSNBC's Chris Matthews and Contessa Brewer sneering at you for all of eternity for not believing in evolution. Roughly one-third of my 2006 number 1 New York Times bestseller, Godless, The Church of Liberalism, is an attack on liberals' creation myth, Darwinian evolution. I presented the arguments of all the luminaries in the field, from the retarded Richard Dawkins to the brilliant Francis Crick, and disputed them. But apparently liberals didn't want to argue back, despite Matthews's obsessive fixation on the topic, manifested by his constantly asking elected Republicans if they believe in evolution. In a one-hour interview with me on godless the very book that is chock-a-block with attacks on Darwinism, Matthews didn't ask me a single question about the subject. No liberal did. Matthews doesn't even know what Darwinian evolution is, nor has he undergone it. Just two years later, at a 2008 Republican presidential candidate's debate, Matthews asked for a show of hands of who believed in evolution. No discussion permitted. That might allow scientific facts rather than schoolyard taunts to escape into the world. Evolution is the only subject that is discussed exclusively as a do-you-believe question with yes-or-no answers. How about conservative journalists start putting mics in front of liberal candidates and demanding, Do you believe in the Bible, yes or no? Is an unborn baby human, yes or no? And... Do you believe teenagers should have sex, yes or no? This is the flash-mob method of scientific inquiry. Liberals quickly surround and humiliate anyone who disagrees with them. They are baffled when appeals to status—every major scientist believes it—don't work on other people the way status works on them. Now that Republican presidential candidate Rick Perry has said there are gaps in the theory of evolution— or gas, as the New York Times originally reported, before issuing a correction, we're in for another round of fact-free mocking of fundamentalist nuts. In fact, however, it has not been advances in Christianity, which is pretty much settled, but in science that have completely discredited Darwin's theory. This week we will consider one small slice of the mountain of scientific evidence disproving this mystery religion from the Victorian age, most devastating for the Darwiniacs were advances in microbiology since Darwin's time, revealing infinitely complex mechanisms requiring hundreds of parts working together at once. Complex cellular structures, DNA, blood clotting mechanisms, molecules, and the cell's tiny flagellum and cilium. Darwin's theory was that life on Earth began with single-celled life forms which by random mutation, sex and death would pass on the desirable mutations. This process, over billions of years, would lead to the creation of new species. The extremely generous test Darwin set for his theory was this. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Thanks to advances in microscopes, thousands of such complex mechanisms have been found since Darwin's day. He had to explain only simple devices such as beaks and gills. If Darwin were able to come back today and peer through a modern microscope to see the inner workings of a cell, he would instantly abandon his own theory. It is a mathematical impossibility, for example, that all 30 to 40 parts of the cell's flagellum could all arise at once by random mutation. According to most scientists, such an occurrence is considered even less likely than John Edwards marrying Riel Hunter, the ground zero of the impossible. Nor would any of those 30 to 40 parts individually make an organism more fit to survive and reproduce which, you will recall, is the linchpin of the whole contraption. And that's just one part of the cell. There's also the cell's cilium, composed of hundreds of parts. As Michael Behe, biochemist and author of Darwin's Black Box, explains, even a mechanism as simple as a three-part mousetrap requires all three parts to be working together at once to be anything at all useful. Otherwise, you don't get a mousetrap that catches half as many mice and thus might win a survival of the fittest competition. You don't get a mouse trap at all. The more we have learned about molecules, cells, and DNA, a body of knowledge some refer to as science, the more preposterous Darwin's theory has become. DNA is, as Bill Gates says, like a computer program but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. Plus, DNA doesn't usually crash when you're right in the middle of reproducing. Evolution fanatics would rather not be called on to explain these complex mechanisms that Darwin himself said, if they existed, would disprove his theory. Instead, they sneer about people who know the truth, claiming that to dispute evolution means you must believe man walked with dinosaurs. Galileo's persecutors probably had some good guffaws about him believing in Fred Flintstone. This is why the brighter Darwinians end up sounding like Scientologists in order to cling to their mystery religion. Crick, winner of the Nobel Prize for his co-discovery of DNA, tried to explain the evident design in nature by hypothesizing that highly intelligent extraterrestrials sent living cells to Earth on an unmanned spaceship a theory he set forth in his 1981 book called Life Itself. Thus was God narrowly averted. But Crick's solution obviously begs the question, how did the highly intelligent extraterrestrials evolve? Harvard population biologist Richard Lewontin said the Darwinians accept unsubstantiated, just-so stories of evolution and ignore the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, because they are committed to coming up with a theory that excludes God. We cannot, Lewontin said, allow a divine foot in the door. Maybe if we called the intelligent designer Louis Vuitton to avoid frightening the God-phobics, they'd finally admit the truth. Modern science has disproved Darwinian evolution.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that the 20th century was a record in Germany, in Russia, in China, in Cambodia, and elsewhere, not only of remarkable stupidity, brutality, and violence, but of unparalleled brutality, stupidity, and violence. And each of the regimes, each of the regimes behind this remarkable decay of civilization had two features in common, two characteristics we should bear in mind. In the first place, the men guiding these regimes and their entourage did not believe for a moment there was any power higher than their own. And they acted on that assumption. And in the second place, in the mass murders they conducted, they were aided and supported by any number of crackpot scientific disciplines. That makes for a characteristic combination. In the case of the Nazis, the scientific disciplines were derived from biology, and especially from Darwinian biology. In 1937, having murdered 70,000 handicapped men, women, and children, the Nazis released a film. And on the background of the film, the narrator says in terms of solemn incomprehension, my goodness, we have sinned against the law of natural selection. The law of natural selection. What could that mean? We have sinned against the law of natural selection. The communists, of course, had an equally crackpot theory that they derived from Marxian economics, the two crackpotteries joining in one deeply repugnant stream. As all of you know, atheism today is not simply the private doctrine of a handful of individuals. It's become a social movement. And as a social movement, it has been advanced chiefly by the scientific community, certainly in the United States, but to a large extent in Europe too. Uh, Some of this is adventitious. A few popular writers such as Richard Dawkins discovered that by writing books indicating that science has shown that God does not exist, well, they could make a fortune. I'm very sorry I wasn't there to join them. I didn't think of it at the time. I'm quite sure that someone now is writing a book how margarine science shows that God does not exist. But the inevitable consequences of this degree of atheism within the scientific community has involved a deformation of scientific thought, quite striking in its character and its extent. After all, the sciences, if we restrict our attention to the serious sciences, and those may be found in mathematics or in mathematical physics in no other place, then we must recognize that the serious sciences have nothing to say about the existence of God, either in their premises or in their conclusion. What a remarkable fact. People are writing books how physics shows that God does not exist, but physics has nothing to say about the existence of God. The aching questions that trouble the human imagination about which the sciences, when seriously considered, are resolutely silent, these remain just where they were. And the religious tradition, especially the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, has offered a coherent body of belief and doctrine by which they can be explained. Do we understand why the universe arose 14 million? No, we don't. Do we understand why it's there at all? No, we have no idea. Do we understand how life emerged on earth? Not a prayer right now. Do we understand the complexity of life? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms. Recent article in Science Digest, Cell Division Requires 4,000 Coordinated Proteins Acting Together. What a remarkable statement. What a wealth of information we possess about biology. What an abundant lack of understanding we have about living systems. Do we understand why the laws of nature are true? No, we have no idea. Do we understand the miracle of analytic continuation in physics when certain kinds of functions can be pushed forward into the future contrary to all experience? Do we understand why the universe remains stable from moment to moment? The medievals pondered this question, ladies and gentlemen, and they came to the conclusion, and I quote a medieval theologian, that God is everywhere conserving the world. What a remarkable declaration. Can we do without it? Can we do without it? Do we have an explanation for the continuity and stability of the universe? There is one paper that I know in the literature by Freeman Dyson that addresses the stability of matter. But beyond that, everything is enigmatic. How can we propose seriously and solemnly to rule out of court in advance a hypothesis that not only answers to the human heart in many respects, but that answers to genuine intellectual needs in other respects? When one sees the American scientific community like a herd of wildebeests trotting across a fruited plain, It's very reasonable to ask, are they going someplace or are they fleeing from someplace? And I think the overwhelmingly obvious answer is they are fleeing. They are fleeing from an idea that they reject for a variety of reasons. Not only is the inquiry about atheism not necessary in terms of the history of social thought, it's not necessary in terms of the outlines of scientific thought. But there is a last question to be addressed, perhaps the most important for you and me. The cosmologist Joel Premack asked an interesting question. He asked, what compels the electron to follow the laws of nature? Good question. I don't know. But Heinrich Himmler, who had presided over the destruction of churches and synagogues throughout Europe and was the mastermind behind the extermination of the Jewish people, asked a very similar question in 1944 when confronted with the onerous treaty obligations the German state had adopted with respect to its own satraps. He asked, insouciantly, but pregnantly, after all, what compels us to keep our promises? Moral relativism is very often (coughs) derided as an unhappy consequence of atheism. I don't think moral relativism is a particularly deep issue, but I do think the issue I do think the issue of what compels us to keep our promises is very relevant. I have in front of of me rather a remarkable button. If you should press it, if you should press it, yours would be untold riches and whatever else you desire. The only consequence to pressing it beyond your happiness is the death of an anonymous Chinese peasant. Who among us would you trust with this button? Let's face it, academics throughout the Western world form a native conspiracy class and they are very akin to a criminal class. They'll believe anything. And once they believe something, the conspiracy is held tenaciously. for, For what were very good reasons, Darwinian theory was accepted in the academic world way before it entered public relations world, the world of the media, world of newspapers or television, and it was accepted because it was a form of power. It was an advantageous acquisition to be able to say, well, you guys out there in the Bible Belt don't understand a thing, but we understand life. Uh, Knowledge is power in the academic world, and that was a devastating acquisition, the more so since it allowed academics to participate in a cultural war against religion, a rival center of power. My interest in divine creation is is, uh, negligible, but I do have a a scientific question to ask you. In fact, two scientific questions, the second logical. Uh, Everyone familiar with the paleontological literature, every significant paleontologist says that there are gaps in the fossil record. Do you have a particular reason for demurring?
2: No, but there are gaps so in the fossil record, of course, because the fossil record's only been examined for about hundred years. I didn't ask there was an explanation years. for the gaps.
1: I asked whether you agree that the fossil record is full of gaps. Of course it has gaps. Okay, so the, to that extent, the evidence does not support Darwin's theory of evolution. No, that
2: is absolutely wrong. Because it follows
1: as the night, the day.
2: Of course not. How could you have a cell, for example, ladies and gentlemen, uh, hundreds of millions of years old that would leave a fossil record. It would disintegrate. It would quite literally I not be able to be found in the insist, fossil record.
1: I never suggested that they may not be explanations of the gaps, but the fact that the fossil record does not on its face support Darwin's theory of evolution it does. is a fact. It,
2: no, it does. It's just you, your they question was, does it prove everything yet? And the answer is, it doesn't prove anything yet. And once again, I say, how many times. Do we have to find those intermediate fossils how many more steps in the progress I, from I, ancient horse to I modern horse do we have to show you
1: answer what would satisfy a scientifically respectable temperament you spurned it all i'm asking for is enlightenment on the significant point darwin's theory requires a continuous a multitude of continuous forms we do not see that in the fossil record in fact Major transitions are utterly incomplete. Will you accept that as as an empirical fact?
2: You sound like a guy who is writing a story about baseball, comes in in the fourth inning, and says, well, you know, I'm going to write about the fourth inning on. The first three innings didn't happen because I wasn't there to see them. The fact that we can't find every one of those intermediate fossils yet in 150... We can't find any of
1: the major transitions. As all of you know... Atheism today is not simply the private doctrine of a handful of individuals. It's become a social movement. And as a social movement, it has been advanced chiefly by the scientific community, certainly in the United States, but to a large extent in Europe, too. Uh, Some of this is adventitious. A few popular writers, such as Richard Dawkins, discovered that by writing books indicating that science has shown that God does not exist, well, they could make a fortune. I'm very sorry I wasn't there to join him. I didn't think of it at the time. I'm quite sure that someone now is writing a book how margarine science shows that God does not exist. But the inevitable consequences of this degree of atheism within the scientific community has involved a deformation of scientific thought Quite striking in its character and its extent. After all, the sciences, if we restrict our attention to the serious sciences, and those may be found in mathematics or in mathematical physics in no other place, then we must recognize that the serious sciences have nothing to say about the existence of God either in their premises or in their conclusion, what a remarkable fact. People are writing books how physics shows that God does not exist, but physics has nothing to say about the existence of God. The aching questions that trouble the human imagination about which the sciences, when seriously considered, are resolutely silent, these remain just where they were. And the religious tradition, especially the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, has offered a coherent body of belief and doctrine by which they can be explained. Do we understand why the universe arose 14 million? No, we don't. Do we understand why it's there at all? No, we have no idea. Do we understand how life emerged on Earth? Not a prayer right now. Do we understand the complexity of life? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms. Recent article in Science Digest, cell division requires 4,000 coordinated proteins acting together. What a remarkable statement. What a wealth of information we possess about biology. What an abundant lack of understanding we have about living systems. Do we understand why the laws of nature are true? No, we have no idea. Do we understand the miracle of analytic continuation in physics when certain kinds of functions can be pushed forward into the future contrary to all experience? Do we understand why the universe remains stable from moment to moment? The medievals pondered this question, ladies and gentlemen, and they came to the conclusion, and I quote a medieval theologian, that God is everywhere conserving the world. What a remarkable declaration. Can we do without it? Can we do without it? Do we have an explanation for the continuity and stability of the universe? There is one paper that I know in the literature by Freeman Dyson that addresses the stability of matter. But beyond that, everything is enigmatic. How can we propose seriously and solemnly to rule out of court in advance a hypothesis that not only answers to the human heart in many respects, but that answers to genuine intellectual needs in other respects? When one sees the American scientific community like a herd of wildebeests, Trotting across a fruited plain, it's very reasonable to ask are they going someplace or are they fleeing from someplace? And I think the overwhelmingly obvious answer is they are fleeing. They are fleeing from an idea that they reject for a variety of reasons. We're dealing with a collection of anecdotes, a, a certain point of view, a series of hunches. Um, I would say that the, the most outstanding, the salient points are first of all, the fossil record. Uh, which, is, which is simply mystifying. We can't make much sense of the fossil record. It does not sustain any kind of Darwinian prediction that can be intelligently derived from Darwinian theory, and it doesn't seem to sustain anything else, as far as I can see. It's, it's a, a perfectly mystifying record. That's one obvious point. I'm not talking just about the Cambrian explosion. I'm talking about everything that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the fossil record. You've given a very sonorous um description of change in the universe. I'm wondering whether your your worldview includes a scientific theory that would be recognizable by any physicist or a mathematician. Things change, I entirely agree, they do change. Is there something to Darwinism beyond that?
3: I've got a kind of feeling that this is the kind of question if I say yes you're going to catch me. Uh, Of course, That's why. (laughs) and if I say no, uh, you're going to catch me too. of course, I, 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 my worldview accepts scientific theories. My worldview accepts uh, f- theories of physics. But it where is the scientific of theory of
1: biology that you're right. proposing to endorse? Yes, where I, is I, the I think that
3: Darwinism, Darwinism, is a scientific theory. Of course, I
1: think. And it the Mississippi has been used. is a river, but where is the theory beyond having named it? I mean, I think we can say as a, as a kind of general principle where Darwinian computer theory simula- simulations work, they're not Darwinian. And when they don't work, what they, require, what they require is the addition of forward-looking memory, some capacity to store information about the future. This is simply missing from Darwinian theory. It's absent a concept. There's a hole where there should be something substantial. And it's not a, it's not a trivial hole. It's a very significant hole. There's the utter absence of laboratory evidence. I mean, random variation, natural selection, we should be able to stop manipulating organisms when we look at dogs, no matter how far back we go, it's dogs. When we look at bacteria, no matter what we do, they stay bugs. They don't change in their fundamental nature. There seems to be some sort of an inherent species limitation, and we have no good explanation for this in terms of Darwinian theory. We should have far more flexibility, far more plasticity under laboratory conditions than we actually do if Darwinian theory or anything like that were correct. What we see in nature, what we see in the laboratory, is very highly bounded variations, cyclic variation. as for example, bin, um, uh, finch beaks in the Galap- uh, Galapagos Island. That's about all we see. Small variations. Why is that, if Darwinian theory is correct? These are evidentiary points that I think need to be stressed, need to be examined openly, honestly. And they never are, of course. Never are. The question isn't whether it is infantile, childish, narrow-minded, whether it's something that one one, uh, could not expect to see in sophisticated circles. Those are points in its favor. Surely we understand that. The question is, what portion of the truth resides in these claims? Uh, We have never been able in any way theoretically to examine the central Darwinian claim that natural selection and random variation can account for a great deal of complexity. If you look at the history of physics for example what did newton do in the 17th century he said well the planets are being attracted to the sun by a force it's not any kind of force it's a inverse square force and then he went and showed that if you make that assumption the result will be an orbit that conforms exactly to the observed orbit say of the of the earth or of mars it will be a conic section and then he proved the converse that if it's a conic section The planets must be attracted to a central source by an inverse square law there is nothing like that in biology in darwinian theory a kind of a a canonical demonstration that this mechanism random variation natural selection is adequate to the generation of this level of complexity from the point of view of the serious sciences without that kind of a demonstration one is completely adrift you have no idea whether the mechanism is adequate for its intended purposes uh, i was very much influenced by uh, mathematical linguistics my great buddy marco schutzenberger was a, a mathematician and uh, noam chomsky and schutzenberger were working together on the description of natural languages by uh, a formal mathematical method and i tried to apply exactly the same description of certain structures in the english grammar to what I then in 1973 understood about molecular biological systems. And what did I discover? That it was impossible, not just difficult, but impossible to use the simplest level of explanation, so-called finite state automata, where one thing happens after another, typical Darwinian progression, small incremental, continuous improvements in the structure of an organism. As soon as you tried to specify that very rigorously, you discovered, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't look good. It doesn't make sense. What you need is at least, and this was 1973, all this is, is uh, far in the past now, and I'm sure the methods have been um, improved, but I think the conclusion is sound. You need at least what's called a push down storage automata. You need some forward looking memory. Let me give you a simple example. You take the English sentence. The old man came. And you can say that sentence is made by first fishing the word the from a vat. And that word determines the next one. It can be old, sprightly, courteous, ancient, whatever. But it determines the next word. And then the the third word, man, is determined by the second word, and the verb at the end is determined by the third word. Very simple system. It's a very Darwinian system. You can imagine Darwinian evolution producing the sentence, the old man came. Turns out English doesn't work that way, and no other natural language does either. For example, the old man who had snorted The roses in the hall came. Now listen to the balance of that sentence. The old man, comma, who had snorted the roses in the hall, comma, came. There is no immediate dependence. When you get to the verb, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the sentence and keep that in memory before you'll understand what the sentence says. That can't be produced by a Darwinian mechanism or a finite state automata. And the great work in this field was done by Noam Chomsky as early as 1958 or 59. You turn to the serious sciences, you turn to general relativity or quantum mechanics. I can program a computer with the equations of general relativity or with the equations of quantum mechanics, and I can say, all right, what are the consequences? I can actually see the consequences uh, emerge in a simulation. We can't do any of this in biology. And that, that should should prompt any reasonable person to ask, why not? If this is such a simple mechanism could easily be programmed on a computer. How come we can't set up a computer and create something of biological-like complexity? How come we cannot see the unfolding of an evolutionary process the way we can see the unfolding of an evolutionary process in physics? It's a very serious question. I've looked at all the genetic algorithms. I'm trying to write a genetic algorithm myself. And uh, and the sheer fact is, uh, without a tremendous amount of very special manipulation and ad hoc constraints, the computer is not going to generate anything realistic if it uses Darwinian mechanisms, and it will generate something realistic only if it doesn't use Darwinian mechanisms. This is an important point. Um, 50 years after the computer revolution began, we have a splendid tool for assessing the the intelligibility and viability of Darwinian theory. And everything that we know, everything that we know, I think this is the uniform experience of anyone working in genetic algorithms indicates these mechanisms will not work. They will not work for their intended purposes. Well, you need a special scale to rank the multiverse, the scale of the preposterous. (laughs) If the doctrine that uh, we all have parents who were ducks comes in at 100, the multiverse comes in at slightly more. (laughs) It is one of those strange phenomena in the history of thought, I mean, you see, the most intelligent people on the planet. And that's sincerely meant these guys are doing quantum cosmology. They're smart. Very smart. Yeah. Very smart. Very smart. Nonetheless, like um, a herd of individuals, they all are instinctively moving toward the same conclusion, which involves embracing any doctrine, hypothesis, or belief other than the most obvious one. It's a remarkable feat. Not of indoctrination. Not of indoctrination. Nobody is forcing these guys to do that but of um, compliance to a party line. And the party line is, God forbid, we should mention anything except a hypothesis that does not invoke a designer or some form of supreme intelligence or some transcendental entity, anything except the obvious one. And they are reacting this way because they've been properly chastened. You know, when the Big Bang hypothesis became more than a hypothesis, when it became part of the settled body of theoretical physics, <clears throat> a great many physicists said, you know, the universe came into existence 15 billion years ago, it sort of erupted into existence from nothing. And some of the physicists with more than a nodding literary acquaintance with the great texts of Western history said, You know, I've heard that before. <laughs> Can't place it, but it's got that ring in the beginning. And they began talking amongst themselves (laughs) and one of the physicists said to the other, you know that's something that was written a long time ago not only in one place but in every single serious creedal system there is reference to uh, the event by which the universe was constructed. And it's remarkably similar to what modern physics shows. That was too much for the community of physicists. It was really an indignity. First of all, that a lot of dopey theologians may have anticipated the Big Bang. What an outrage. Chutzpah, as we say in Greek. (laughs) That couldn't be. But in the second place, it conflicted with everything the community, the scientific community in the West took to be their prerogative. They would decide what the physical world looks like. They would answer all questions. To the scientists would repair all inquiring intellects. And anybody who didn't like it, well, just too bad. And here is a conclusion that um, didn't seem quite agreeable. So an incredible amount of effort has been devoted, say, since 1971, 1972. How many years is that? 38, Uh, 37, something, yeah. I don't do that kind of math. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. neither did Einstein. (laughs) We're brain workers. We leave that to other people. (laughs) An incredible amount of work has been devoted to rejecting this palpable and obvious conclusion. Well, if you find the existence of the universe a remarkable mystery, some, of the, some sense of that mystery can be dispelled if you say to yourself, no, it's not just one universe. There are all sorts of universes lying around out there, loitering, as it, will, as it were. And there's nothing mysterious about our universe, because any property that we find uh, desperately enigmatic about the world in which we live is sure to arise by chance, just so long as we have sufficiently many universes to make the play of the dice agreeable. Hence the hypothesis that we live not in the universe, but in one universe, and that there are indefinitely many other universes out there. And that principle, the doctrine of the multiverse, multi-universe, goes along with a number of other nonsensical doctrines. The anthropic cosmological principle, for example. And this is not the time, I think, to, to go on an extended exploration of the anthropic cosmological principle, nor the doctrine of the multiverse. My point is otherwise. I think you have a genuine example in the flight of the community of physicists from any confrontation with the obvious to a variety of metaphysical speculations that strain credulity of a, of a relatively familiar phenomenon in the history of thought that is party-line orthodoxy. We've seen it with Marxism, we certainly saw it
4: with Freud, Freudianism,
1: and it continues to this day within the sciences.
4: Roughly. What percentage of Darwinian theory do you consider bogus as opposed to supported by God's, uh, the book of God's works? Let,
1: let's, let's separate the, the, the conjunction into two parts. What part of Darwinian theory do I regard as bogus in terms of a percentage? Yeah. hundred percent.
4: So then you find nothing in the Darwinian theory that is supported by the book of God's works? Nah.
2: We all know we should give to charity, but how many of us really do? And who is it that tends to give? Fox News contributor Jeff Birnbaum talked with Arthur Brooks, director of the nonprofit studies program at Syracuse University and author of a book on
4: the subject of giving. Arthur Brooks, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Your book, Who Really Cares?, is about the charity divide and who gives and who really doesn't give. Are we uh, giving? people. Is America very charitable? As a, as a country, we're unbelievably generous. Is,
3: there's there's no comparison between Americans and people from any other countries. If you look at the just the evidence on charitable giving, the data, you find that Americans give more dollars than people from any other country. Americans give seven times more dollars per year than the average German, 14 times more than the average Italians, and that's not because of income and it's not because of taxes. It's a true cultural difference. Right. A
4: quarter trillion dollars a year of charity
3: uh, by Americans. That's right. Now, that's actually more more than the whole national income of Sweden or Denmark
4: or Norway that's how much we give now uh, your book is a, is telling us who gives and who doesn't one of the very interesting conclusions is that people who go to worship once a week are the most generous people is that is there a connection between charity and religion oh yeah, I mean as, as a matter of fact, if I can ask you one question that will predict better than any
3: other whether or not you 're giving to charity and volunteering your time it 's going to be about your religious participation. If you attend a house of worship on any kind of regular basis you 're about twenty five percentage points
4: more likely to be giving
3: than if you don't get than if
4: you don 't go to church and you 'd imagine that people have the most money will give the most in charity, but you say it's not so
3: no it's not well i mean america's wealthy people are truly generous and, and compared to the wealthy people from other countries there's no comparison once again so we have nothing to be ashamed of from our wealthy communities but when you look at the percentage of the income that people give away it's the working poor the, the truly generous americans they give far and away the most in our society we can all learn a charity lesson from america's working
4: poor wait, wait let me understand this i mean people who make less money give more as a percentage of their income than people who make a lot more money exactly right that's a surprising t- Truth, actually. It's one of the
3: things that we find is that the working poor give the most, the rich give the second most, and the middle
4: class give the least in America today. Um, you point out that there are some 85 million American families that do give to uh, to charities, to nonprofit organizations, and some 30 million don't give anything at all. That's right. Could you break that down for us a little bit? Who gives and who doesn't? Is well, there a political component? There is a
3: political component. It is primarily a religious component and a component that, that it has to do with people and how they view the, the, what the government is supposed to be paying for. So, for example, if we find that somebody believes that the government should be doing more to equalize incomes in our society, the chances are they're going to give a lot less than somebody who disagrees with that statement. And that has a lot to do with politics these days. Religion has a lot to do with politics as well. So we find, for example, that on average, conservative families give more dollars to charity than liberal families in spite of, according to some data, making slightly less income. But it has more to do with religion and attitudes about government than anything else.
4: At least uh, the self-image of uh, people who are liberal, politically speaking, is that they are the compassionate ones are you saying that it's actually compassionate conservatives who at least when you look at their charitable giving are the people who are more generous
3: well they 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 give more to charity who is more compassionate well there are lots of ways to be compassionate but one of the things that we find is people who take the decision into their own hands to give are disproportionately conservative in america today and that does in fact go against the stereotype that those who care the most for the needy are the people on the left we saw campaign signs in my town that said bush must go mm-hmm. human need not corporate greed. That was the most common campaign sign before the 2004 election, which in a nutshell said, the right's greedy and venal, the left is really compassionate, but
4: the data on charitable giving tell the opposite story. That's that's uh, fascinating. Um, you're not saying. I just want to be sure that Democrats are sort of heartless people, and Republicans are much more uh, uh, giving sorts of people. Oh my are, goodness, no! One yeah.
3: of the things that we find is that religious liberals are every bit as generous as religious conservatives. There are just fewer of them.
4: Um, what about billionaires? Are billionaires uh, somehow less charitable than uh, than the, the working poor? Well, it depends on how you measure it. Mm-hmm. If
3: you take billionaires and you look at the percentage of their income that they give away, they, in fact, are less charitable than America's working poor. When you look in total dollars, of course, they're paying for most of the services that we, that we enjoy in the nonprofit economy. So it
4: all depends on how you measure it. Are the people who donate a disproportionate amount of, of their money, do they tend to be better people as well? Well, it depends, on once
3: again, on what what you think a good person is really all about, but the interesting thing is that people who donate formally, their time and the money, are the same people who are engaging in the smallest ethical acts and compassionate acts towards others. So, for example, people who give, about 7 in 10 will give back change they mistakenly get from a cashier. If people who don't give to charity, only 3 in 10 give the money
4: back, so you decide who's the better person. A wonderful, a wonderful message for this holiday season. Arthur Brooks, author of Who Really Cares, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
5: So my name is Scott Bornstein, and I am a pediatric oncologist, and I take care of children, teenagers, and young adults with cancer. I could not do my job without the volunteers who donate their blood and their platelets for our patients. The reasons why platelets are so important for cancer patients is that a lot of the treatments we use to treat cancer can have side effects, and one of the side effects is, is it affects your body's ability to make normal blood cells. And so after you get certain types of chemotherapy, your body can't make platelets, and so your platelet count falls, and it makes you more likely to bleed. And so, one of the ways that we help and support our patients that get intensive chemotherapy is we have to give them platelet transfusions. I just want to thank everybody who donates their blood to help our patients. We could not uh, treat our patients without you, and you have my heartfelt gratitude.
6: David Berlinski, I want to talk today with you, and you're uniquely qualified to do this, about evolution, science, and progressivism, because there's a link through them all. You've written about this and spoken about this many, many times. You received your PhD in philosophy from Princeton University, later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. I'm glad I didn't take any of those courses. Senior Fellow in the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. You've taught philosophy, mathematics, English at Stanford, Rutgers, City University of New York, and in Paris. And you're now the editor of Inference, International Review of Science. Let's get started. Um, You wrote a book about a decade ago
0: that I read about a
6: decade ago. And in doing this program, I started to think about it. And I said, it's, I think it's important that we have this discussion about science, evolution, progressivism. And I want to start where you started. Let me read you one paragraph. I'm a secular Jew. You're right. My religious education did not take. I can barely remember a word of Hebrew. I cannot pray. I've spent more years than I care to remember in studying mathematics and writing about the sciences. Yet, as you wrote in the preface of this book, uh, the book that follows is in some sense a defense of religious thought and sentiment. Biblical verses are the least of it. A defense is needed because none has been forthcoming. The discussion has been ceded to men who regard religious belief with frivolous contempt. Their books have in recent years poured from every press, and although differing widely in their style, they're identical in their message because scientific theories are true religious beliefs must be false from your book The Devil's Delusion Atheism and its scientific pretensions and that is the thesis that is the that is that is the 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 foundational point of your book can you expand on that well something something particular
1: and peculiar seems to have come over American intellectual life Anglo-American intellectual life Perhaps uh, 20 years ago, in the 1950s and 1960s, the position that was academically tolerated was uh, a kind of cheerful agnosticism with respect to the religious tradition of mankind. Could be with respect to God's existence. Maybe, maybe not. But this isn't an issue that vexes us profoundly as members of the scientific community. At all Changed. Now a kind of very, very... Uh, vociferous and dogmatic atheism has become obligatory in the scientific community. There are exceptions. There are always going to be exceptions. Uh, For all I know, some distinguished physicist may be plotting jihad. I have no idea. But by and large, atheism has replaced any kind of tolerant and forbearing agnosticism as the de facto standard in Anglo-American scientific intellectual life. Mm -hmm. And as a result the religious tradition, that is a very, very long 5,000 year old tradition has been made into an object of faint derision among sophisticated men and women. Much to the consternation of people who deeply, deeply admire that tradition. And that I think is a change in the diopason of life that we need to pay attention to. It's relatively new. I think it started around 1980, 1985. But it has become an accelerating force in intellectual life. If you are minded to be a serious Christian or an extremely devout and orthodox Jew or even a serious Muslim, better not go into the scientific community and tell your fraternity brothers that that is what you are best to keep your mouth closed Mm -hmm. I think that's that's generally true it's it's among the various topics about which it is not a particularly good idea to make broadcast your views
6: and then you add following up on your point no scientific theory touches on the mysteries that the religious tradition addresses A man asking why his days are short is not disposed to turn to algebraic quantum field theory for the answer. The answers that prominent scientific figures have offered are remarkable in their shallowness. They hypothesize that we are nothing more than than cosmic accidents uh, have been widely accepted by the scientific community. And you say, basically science has nothing to say about life and love and death and meaning. Hardly a controversial point,
1: is it? I mean, if I am asking certain kinds of questions, look, look around you, there's something there. Open your eyes, you're struck by the existence of the universe. Why is that there? You look at at the answers forthcoming from the physics community, they can be described in one of two ways. Well, what do you expect? We're here, therefore there's something there. Or it's kind of an accident. These are not the kind of answers intelligent men and women are are searching for. They they correspond to no deep, deep uh, intellectual need. They're frivolous. Physics really has nothing to tell us, for example, about the origins and appearance of the universe. It has a lot of interesting things to say about cosmology, but it's not the same question. The most radical question you can ask is, why is there something, anything, rather than what? Nothing. Well, Why is there? It's perfectly possible to propose that there could have been nothing whatsoever. I don't mean some pre-existing stuff, I mean nothing. Well that's not the world we live in. How come? It's a good question. What's your answer? And when you actually look at the physicist or the biologist or the chemist, their answer is we know how it happened we open our eyes to, there's something, and we can explain the origin of all that by appealing to some pre-existing something. Are you satisfied with that? If not, well, you're not scientifically literate. Lawrence Krauss makes exactly that same argument. Well, the reason the universe popped into existence was a pre-existing quantum field from which it, it, from which it arose by a probability. And they have measure. no
6: real, solid idea, do they? None whatsoever. And yet they continue to push their theories out as if it's science.
1: Well, let's be fair, wouldn't you do the same thing if you were a leading physicist? I I sure would. If I had a if I had a theory that deep down I knew was no good, but there were all sorts of emoluments, richness, uh, awards, prestige associated with I would push it for all it's worth is, too. Is this
6: why we get these arguments about climate change where The same scientists can't tell you. I'm
1: talking about the top physicists, climate change. We've got to go down that ladder (laughs) all the way into the bottom.
6: And yet, for a lot of us, it's just a mush out there. In other words, you're saying the top physicists. And and what I'm saying is, when we take a look at climate change, we, we have a community that can't tell us the temperature in a week within 10 degrees. But they can tell us the temperature in 100 years within a one degree. And what I'm saying is, you're saying these top physicists, but is it, isn't it pervasive? Isn't this a pervasive problem throughout science?
1: To a certain extent. Look, look science is an enormous enterprise. How many guys, how many women, men and women, uh, affirm themselves as scientists worldwide today? Do you happen to have the number? Uh, it's 7 million. 7 million people are engaged in the scientific enterprise and of course you're going to find very repetitive sociological patterns when there is something as important as the environment or climate you're going to find groups forming factions splitting off from the initial group a tremendous amount of propaganda elaborate elaborate approaches to government resources There's a great deal of money to be had and it's not coming from the private sector It's coming from the federal government Um, when I talk about fundamental questions about the origin of the universe, we're appealing to the very top of the intellectual ladder. When I talk about climate change, we're talking about some competent people, not many, some competent people with moderately conflicting views, both about the origins of climate change, yes, the world is getting warmer, Uh, the nature of climate change, the reliability of the climatic models, the theories that go into them, and prognostications for the future. It's not entirely clear exactly which group has the most overwhelming and persuasive evidence.
6: Well, let's talk about the top, if you think this fellow, at least arguably, Darwin. A lot of theories, a lot of arguments, a lot of science, so to speak. What is Darwinianism? What is that? Well, Darwin comes a mid-19th
1: century figure, 1859, he published what is arguably his masterpiece, The Origin of Species, and the question that Darwin asked himself was the question that all of the 19th century biologists were asking, what is the nature of life, what is the origin of individual species, how did life emerge from in- inorganic matter, and what are the dynamic laws that change one species into another if there is such a thing as a change of species? Don't forget, alchemy promoted a very, a very uh, similar thesis when it said base metals could be transmuted into gold. It was a, an argument for transmutation of elements. Well, Darwin provided an alchem- alchemical explanation for biology. Species could be transformed into other species. Well, how how can this come about? We don't see it every day. It comes about because there are small variations within each species, and these variations are seized upon by the mechanism of natural selection, which simply means some survive, some don't survive. Over vast periods of time, these small variations accumulate. They converge on a different structure and various different structures in turn converge on a new body plan a new organism a new species a new entry in the vast pharmacopoeia of life that's darwinism mm. and it's uh, it's a position which is being increasingly held as a a secular doctrine was comparable right? comparable to the book of genesis was he right i have a lot of doubts i have a lot of doubts and so do other people um, there are Many, many places, when one looks at Darwinism, when one says, hey, look, this just isn't a scientific theory. It's a collection of anecdotes. Why did the giraffe develop such a long neck? Well, he wanted to reach the trees on the top. Well, how come other other animals didn't develop the long... neck? Well, they didn't want to reach the trees on the top. How come this, uh, Sarah, <coughs> certain kinds of European eels have to swim across the Atlantic in order to mate... Other kinds of eels are perfectly happy fornication, fornicating close to home. Well, it worked for one seal, didn't work for the other. Uh, Why aren't women born with tails like cats? Well, women don't seem to need the tails, even though it would make them even more alluring than they are. Uh, Why don't cats rule the world? considering they have every reason and every opportunity to do so, while they're content being our domestic masters. I mean, the anecdotes pile on interminably, and there's no fundamental leading principle. Do you find
6: that most atheists, more prominent atheists, embrace Darwinism? Every last one. And why do they do that?
1: Because it's a secular myth. Uh, even atheists need some compelling myth. How we got here, what we're doing here, what our purpose is. How we got here, it was an accident. What are we doing here? We have no idea. What is our purpose? It's replication, fornication and replication. That's about it. But it's a very, very viable myth. People believe it. They act according to it.